Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, thanks once again for joining us for Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And, uh, Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Happy to learn a little bit more about uh, the Constitution and the, uh, the generation that gave us that amazing document. Well, thank you, Brian, and it's great to talk to you again. But when we look at the Constitution, we need to remember the Constitution was designed to be a Constitution for the ages, and it was intended to be applied to situations that would come up time and again throughout the history of our Republic. And we see a crisis going on today that certainly reflects what the Founding Fathers intended, We see Afghanistan and the fall of Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks. And I am outraged by this, but not nearly as outraged as people who have actually been there. And I've served in the Guard during Afghanistan, but I was not actually over there like some people were. I have a doctor who, she is a Vietnamese immigrant to the United States, She was 15 years old at the time of the Vietnam airlift in 1975, remembers that very well, but she is utterly outraged today as she looks to Afghanistan. She says, at least our airlift out of Vietnam, it was orderly, it was planned. This is an utter disaster and an utter betrayal. And when I hear the president brag about the success of the airlift, an airlift that would not have been necessary had he planned things right from the beginning. You take the military out after you have evacuated the citizens, not before. But when he says that 90% of those who want to be evacuated have been evacuated, well, an American congressman who had served in Afghanistan today, just said an acceptable rate is 100%. And this is an utter, utter disaster. But when we see a president that won't answer questions, president that seems like he's not fully in command, and who has done things here that many think are worthy of impeachment, I think with that in mind, we need to look to what the Constitution actually says about impeachment. And in Article 2, Section 4, we read the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. I was on a program several days ago with a lady who was of the opinion that it is mandatory that the president be impeached and removed over this. Well, as I'm reading Article 2, Section 4, it is mandatory that he be removed if he is impeached and convicted. Now, we have to understand that the United States Constitution, unlike some state constitutions and constitutions of a lot of private organizations, impeachment is not the same as removal. Most people will talk about impeachment as removal, and in many organizations it is, but in 
our Constitution, the House impeaches, which is kind of like bringing charges, maybe an indictment, and anyway, that has to be done by a simple majority of the House, and then if they do so, then the Senate decides to convict, and anyway, if that has to be by two-thirds, but at any rate, the grounds here are treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, but the requirement is they be removed if they are impeached and convicted. Doesn't say that they have to be impeached and convicted every time they have committed a treason, bribery, other high crime and misdemeanor. There is some room for prosecutorial discretion there, you might say. And the question then is, do we have treason, bribery or other high crimes or misdemeanors? There are those who during this last effort to impeach President Trump were arguing that the term misdemeanors, as the founders intended the term, did not necessarily mean minor criminal offenses. It could include other things that were not technically violations of the law. I have to agree with Alan Dershowitz on that, that I don't think that this can be interpreted to mean anything other than violations of the law. For example, we consider that when this was being considered in Congress, that there was, or in the convention, there was a proposal presented by at least one delegate that wanted to add to these grounds maladministration. But the convention chose to reject that. So that sounds to me like they intended to limit the grounds for removal to criminal offenses. Sheer stupidity is not a criminal offense. And I sometimes try to follow a motto in politics that never attribute to malice anything that can be adequately explained by stupidity. I'm having a hard time explaining some of this by stupidity. But at any rate, one thing in particular that the lady who was doing the interview with me brought up was treason. And she said that when you give to the Taliban a list of American citizens, isn't that treason? Isn't that levying war against the United States, giving aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States? It certainly could be. However, the Biden administration will probably argue that we did this. And first of all, it's not completely clear that they did, but that if this was done, it was done for the purpose of screening them so they could get through security. If the Taliban knew these were American citizens to be evacuated, they would let them through security and let them get to the airport. One thing that I think we need to notice is that liberals have an insatiable capacity for stupidity and naivety, gullibility. Oh, by the way, Brian, did you know that in the latest edition of Webster's Dictionary, they have actually taken the word gullible out of the dictionary now? I've heard that. Haven't had a chance to check it out for myself, but I've heard that. <laughs> well, it's not true, but I think you believe me. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, what the, the gullibility of liberals is believing in the goodness of human nature. A little later today, we're going to see a quote by 
our man today, Governor Morris, as he talks about Thomas Jefferson in this way of being gullible and believing in human goodness. But liberals have an insatiable capacity to believe in human goodness. And in fact, it's sometimes said that liberals love humanity but hate people because people don't live up to the ideals that liberals have about the goodness of humanity. When they see how people actually are, they become angry. But anyway, it seems incredible that they would trust the Taliban in this way, but they just might have been gullible enough to do so. The point I'm simply making here is, I don't know that we have a basis for treason or another criminal offense here. It may be, and I hope this is going to be investigated. One thing that I hope is going to be done here is a thorough investigation of what's happened here, and this needs to be done by the Republican leadership. If they leave it up to Pelosi and the Democrats to conduct an investigation, it's going to be a whitewash. But when I say that we need to use some discretion here, prosecution, prosecutorial discretion, well, what we need to consider here is, first of all, it's not likely to happen. With Pelosi in charge of the House, we're not likely to get a majority to impeach. And even if we do, with a 50-50 vote in the Senate, we're not likely to get two-thirds to remove and convict. So it's just not likely to happen. But consider what would happen if we did. Then we get Kamala Harris as president, a hardcore leftist as well as an incompetent, and it might be better that we have somebody like Biden who might have some advisors who will prop him up who are opportunistic rather than hardcore leftist. And maybe this is going to be a better situation than the alternative. You know, there is a possibility of getting an impeachment vote through the House. That possibility would be if, let's say, the Republicans all stood together to vote for impeachment, and then some of the hardcore left, like AOC and the squad, they decided they wanted to get rid of Biden so they could put in Kamala Harris. Together, they might possibly have the votes to do it. I still don't think they'd get it through the Senate. And even if they did, I'm not sure it's a good idea. So the big thing we need to do is keep this issue before the public for the 22 elections. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I believe you mentioned uh, we're going to learn today a little bit about uh, Governor Morris. And I, I'd reckon that's a name that not everyone is familiar with. Governor Morris. And you're right, a lot of people are not familiar with Governor Morris. Or maybe they just remember his name as being one of the founding fathers. But other than that, know anything about him. Well, the thing they probably think they know is, well, he must have been a governor because that's his name. Actually, the name Governor is a family name on his mother's side, but he was never a governor. He was a senator, a congressman, legislator, many things, but not a governor, but a very important founding father. 
Now, if we were to ask the question, <clears throat> who was the father of the Constitution? What would be the answer that people would get? Well, many times what I would do when teaching in law school was in the first class of constitutional law, I would have a quiz of my students just to get an idea of how much they knew about the Constitution for starters. And one of the questions I would ask is, <clears throat> who was the main drafter of the Constitution? I would find that about 30% of them would answer Thomas Jefferson. Now, Jefferson was, of course, the primary drafter of the Declaration of Independence, but he was not even a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. All the time the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were being adopted, he was out of the country. He was across the ocean serving as ambassador to France. But at any rate, that's common perception there. But others might say, well, maybe George Washington or maybe James Madison. Well, George Washington, being the president of the Continental Convention and the one who held things together, you might say that he could be the father of the spirit of the Constitution. You might say that James Madison, being the one who formulated the Virginia Resolves and the one who wrote the notes on the convention, <clears throat> that maybe Madison would be the father of the ideas of the Constitution. But I'm going to have to say to you today that the father of the letter of the Constitution would probably have to be Governor Morris. Now, Governor Morris spoke at the Constitutional Convention 173 times, more frequently than any other delegate. Next was James Wilson. Next after that was James Madison. And it wasn't just a comment here and there. His speeches were many times fairly lengthy, but they were very substantial contributions in terms of ideas and proposals. He served at the end of the convention on the Committee on Style, that is the committee that would do a final draft of the Constitution, and the Committee on Style tasked him with actually writing the final draft of the Constitution. They submitted that final draft about three days before the end of the convention, and with just a few minor changes, that draft was accepted as the Constitution itself. So I think we have to say that Governor Morris is the father of the letter of the Constitution and a very important founding father. But who was he? Well, let's look a little to his upbringing. He was born to a very prominent family in a town in New York, a town that was named Morrisania, which suggests to you that the town got its name from his family. He's born on January 31st of 17. 52, which tells you that at the time of the Declaration of Independence, he was only 24, and at the Constitutional Convention, he's only 35. As a child, he was fond of sports, but he was educated at a French Huguenot school in New Rochelle, New York, and Huguenot means Protestant, and he studied law then afterward at King's College, which is now Columbia. He was admitted to practice of law at age 19. Interestingly, John Jay, who we studied a few weeks ago, 
John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, also studied at that same French Huguenot school and at King's College, and that was a few years earlier than Governor Morris. But both of these schools gave very strong Christian training. When he was 24, he lost his leg in an accident. He fell getting into a carriage, and his leg was caught in the wheels of the wagon. And as a result of that, he had to have his leg amputated and had a wooden leg, which kind of characterized him throughout his life, but didn't prevent him from being on the dance floor and other things like this, and lived a very active life despite that. Well, he served in the New York Assembly starting at age 1775, that is, when he is 23 years old, and he was assigned by the New York legislature in 1776 to write an official letter from the legislature instructing the New York delegates to the Continental Congress that they were to vote in favor of the Declaration of Independence. He worked with John Jay and Robert Livingston to draft a constitution for the state of New York. He then was elected to Congress in 1777. In 1779, he was not reelected, and the reason is he was opposed to lawlessness, and many interpreted that to mean that he was pro-British, which he was not. Well, he thought his political career in New York was over, so he moved to Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, set up a law practice there. However, he was a strong supporter of independence, and in fact, Robert Morris, who was no relation, appointed him to be the assistant superintendent of finance for the war, and he served in that capacity from 1780 to 1785. He visited Valley Forge, and he saw the conditions of our troops there and was dismayed by what he saw, and so he overhauled the Army's finance system and the Army's supply train or chain. After the war, he urged a constitutional convention. He strongly believed we needed a stronger central government than we had under the Articles of Confederation, even though he had signed the Articles. And so, when the convention took place, he was elected as a delegate. But this time, it's from Pennsylvania, not from New York. There at the convention, he was a strong ally of Alexander Hamilton, being among those who wanted a strong central government. They were allied against others, like George Mason and others, who were very much opposed to a strong central government. And the document they produced was somewhere in between the two. But Governor Morris, for example, like Hamilton, wanted a president who was elected for life. He wanted senators who were appointed by the president and appointed for life, much like the House of Lords in England. He wanted life tenure for justices on the court and all their federal judges. He said that this was a, a good requirement because judges should, insofar as possible, be accountable only to God. 
And you can see his point. You don't want judges basing their decisions on how it might affect their chances for re-election or for reappointment. But the problem is we have federal judges today who don't seem to think they are accountable to God. In fact, we have federal judges today who seem to think they are gods. I'm not sure how Morris would react if he saw the situation of our federal courts today. He was accused of having slipped a semicolon into the general welfare clause, making it a separate clause, giving independent power to the federal government. But he supported ratification of the Constitution, even though he felt that it wasn't strong enough in its powers for the federal government. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And today we're, we're talking about Governor Morris. And Colonel, I, I think I told you before we went on the air here, um, I had heard his name, but only because I had read your book, Christianity and the Constitution. I was very favorably impressed, and, and you're bringing to mind all the reasons why I was favorably impressed by uh, Governor Morris and, and his contributions. Well, let's continue looking at Governor Morris. One of the things that I should add about the Constitutional Convention was that Governor Morris was a very strong opponent of slavery. You recall that there was a compromise clause in the Constitution that provided that a slave would count as three-fifths of a person. This is because there is a dispute between northern and southern delegates on the question of counting slaves. First of all, since we were going to have one house of the legislature that was determined by population. Do we count slaves in the population? The South said, of course we do. The North said, no, we don't. And then when we're looking at taxes being apportioned by population, well, do we count slaves for the population of that? And the North says, of course we do. The South says, no, we don't. So there's some hypocrisy on both sides here. So they reached a raw compromise that we would count slaves as three-fifths of a person. And Governor Morris was very much opposed to this. He said America, he said that we were that slavery was an abomination for the nation and was particularly a curse upon the states that had it. He also opposed the clause that prohibited eliminating the slave trade for 20 years. He would like to see it eliminated immediately. And he had a lot of support not only among Northern delegates, but a lot of the Virginia delegates too, some of them who were slaveholders themselves, nevertheless felt that slavery was wrong and they wanted it to be abolished, just needed to have some time to do it and felt that under the economy at the time, they could not really free their slaves because the slaves would then have no way of making a living. But Patrick Henry felt that way, James Madison felt that way, George Washington felt that way, and Washington freed his slaves upon his death, according to his will, and Jefferson did not, but it was Jefferson who sowed some of the seeds by his statement in the Declaration that all men are created equal. But anyway, another thing that Morris said that I think is worthy of note in regard to our Constitution is that 
Americans need never fear their governors because of the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation. The right to keep and bear arms is a means of securing our freedom against a tyrannical government. You notice one of the first things the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan right now? They are seizing private ownership of arms. And tyrants throughout history have done the same thing. Well, as we say, Morris was much more of a federalist and not as much of an anti-federalist, let's say, as Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry and some others. And because of his federalist convictions, Morris was very, very skeptical of things that were going on in France. Now, when Washington became president, he appointed Jefferson to be Secretary of State, which meant he had to recall Jefferson from France, and he sent Morris to France in Jefferson's place. Morris detested the morals of the French people. He felt that they were just utterly disgraceful in their system of morality there. And he also was utterly disgusted by the French Revolution. On several occasions while he was there, his house in France was searched. He was arrested once for not having a citizen card in his possession. And each time that happened, he protested, eventually received a surly apology from the French government. He tried to shelter the French aristocracy, and he tried to arrange for the king and queen to escape unsuccessfully. And as a result, the revolutionary French government disliked Morris and feared him. And when Washington had difficulty with the French government over citizen Genet in America, then the French responded by demanding that Washington recall Morris as ambassador, so Washington had to recall Morris as ambassador in 1794. Morris then spent the next four years traveling in France, he wanted, and the rest of Europe, wanted to see what things were going on there, and anyway, he talked about how bad things were getting in France when he was asked one time what he predicted for France, he replied, guerre, famine, peste, that is war, famine, pestilence, and then added, I pray God the prediction be not fully accomplished. When Napoleon and his troops were defeated by the Russians with that long Russian winter and the retreat from Moscow, Morris wrote that he saw God's hand at work in the defeat of Napoleon by the Tsar, and he said, the signal victories of Russia demand our thanks to Almighty God, by whose providence they are ordered. And anyway, he expressed confidence that God would protect the French revolutionaries in Germany and elsewhere. Many other things that he had to say about France was, he said, the materials for a revolution in this country, France, are very indifferent. Everybody agrees there is an utter prostration of morals, but this general proposition can never convey to an American mind the degree of depravity. It is not by any figure of rhetoric or force of language that the idea can be communicated. A hundred anecdotes 
and 100,000 examples are required to show the extreme rottenness of every member. There are men and women who are greatly and eminently virtuous. I have the pleasure to number many in my acquaintance, but they stand forward from a background deeply and darkly shaded. It is, however, from such crumbling matter that the great edifice of freedom is to be erected here. Perhaps, like the stratum of rock which is spread under the whole surface of their country, it may harden when exposed to the air, but it seems quite as likely that it will fall and crash the builders. There is one fatal principle which pervades all ranks. Again, he's talking about France. Inconstancy is a perfect in, in it is a perfect indifference to the violation of engagements. Inconstancy is so mingled in the blood, marrow, and very essence of this people that when a man of high rank and importance laughs today at what he seriously asserted yesterday, it is considered as in the natural order of things. Consistency is a phenomenon. Judge then what would be the value of association should a thing be proposed and even adopted. The great mass of the common people have no religion, but their priests, no law, but their superiors, no morals, but their interests. These are the creatures who, led by drunken curates, are now on the high road a la liberté, and the first use they make of it is to form insurrections everywhere for the want of breath. Talked about the open contempt of religion that he saw throughout France. He said, since I have been in this country, I have seen the worship of many idols, but little of the true God. And he wanted a constitution to France and proposed one that would have a limited constitutional monarchy because he said that's the only constitution that would work over there. He even said the American constitution would never work in France because the French people lack the moral character for responsible self-government. He said, for the place here, he said the problem is they want an American constitution with the exception of a king instead of a president without reflecting that they have not American citizens to support that constitution. In other words, he's saying what John Adams said, that constitution is made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. And the French people are not that kind of people. The American constitution simply would never work there. Well, he talked extensively about France, but one of the things that he emphasized in France there is that religion is the only firm basis for morality. It is the only solid basis of good morals. Therefore, education should teach the precepts of religion and the duties of man toward God. And he said that government has to be based upon a realistic nature of the people that you have. He wrote, for example, the true object of a great statesman is to give to any particular nation the kind of laws which is suitable to them and the best constitution which they are capable of. And the French, he thought, were not capable of the kind of constitution that we would have in the United States. He had a lot of contempt for Thomas Paine in particular. They were enemies and they were in France at the same time. But more after the break.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, talking about uh, Governor Morris, I was very intrigued as we ended the as we got to the end of the last segment about uh, his observations that the Constitution that uh, the founders in America had penned would not have been appropriate for the French. Well, as we took our break, we were also thinking about Thomas Paine, and Paine was in France at the same time as Governor Morris. And at one point, Morris wrote, Thomas Paine is in prison, where he amuses himself by writing a pamphlet against Jesus Christ. And Morris did very little to help Paine get out of prison, and Paine was quite critical of him for that. But Morris's life is clearly reflected by a strong faith in God. He says concerning the Lord, when his sister's child passed away, his nephew or niece, he consoles his sister by saying, God's bounty is as unbounded as his power. Confiding in the one, be resigned to the other, and accepting with gratitude what it may please him to give, surrender with respectful obedience to what he shall think proper to take away. O God, thy will be done. He likewise had a strong faith in the Bible, which he repeatedly referred to as Holy Writ, and which he cited extensively, sometimes just as allusions rather than chapter and verse. He didn't say much about Jesus Christ, but he did refer to him as God. He would not get extensively into matters of doctrine, although he was an Episcopalian, buried in an Episcopal churchyard. But one of the things, in keeping with the Christian view of original sin, he had a very low view of human nature and believe that government has to be based on that realistic view of human nature. And he had a good sense of humor, too, and here's what he wrote about Jefferson and Jefferson's high view of human nature. He said, It is the fashion with those discontented creatures called Federalists to say that our president, that is Jefferson, is not a Christian. Yet they must acknowledge that in true Christian meekness, when smitten on one cheek, he turns the other, and by his late appointment of Monroe, has taken a special care that a stone which the builders rejected should become the first of the corner. These are his works, and for his faith it is not a grain of mustard, but the full size of a pumpkin, so that while men of mustard seed faith can only move mountains, he finds no difficulty in swallowing them. He believes, for instance, in the perfectibility of man, the wisdom of mobs, and the moderation of Jacobins. He believes in the payment of debts by diminution of revenue, in the defense of territory by reduction of armies, and in vindication of rights by the appointment of ambassadors. Application of that to our current situation with Afghanistan and our current president's response seems very clear. Well, 1798, after traveling in Europe, he returned not to Pennsylvania, but back to Morrisania, New York, and in 1800, New York elected him to the U.S. Senate. As a Federalist, he opposed many of Jefferson's policies. Particularly, he thought Jefferson was way, way too favorable to the French, and he was much more favorable to the British. He supported Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, but partly because he thought that purchasing Louisiana from Napoleon would weaken the French presence in the United States, and earlier he wanted the United States to 
annex Louisiana and by force if necessary. He strongly opposed the War of 1812 against England. He thought that if we were going to go to war with anybody, it ought to be France, not Britain. He urged New England and the state of New York to secede from the United States in 1812. Interesting that this man, who was the strong Federalist, believed in the right of states to secede, but because he didn't like Jefferson's policies, which he thought were pro-Southern, he wanted the New England states, New York, to secede and form the New England Confederacy. He supported the creation of the Erie Canal. In fact, he was the founding chairman of the Erie Canal Commission. But regardless of his feelings about secession, he had great faith in the United States. And in 1801, he wrote, the proudest empire in Europe is but a bauble. America will be, must be, in the course of two centuries, perhaps of one. What a vision for America. Whether he actually saw that America would one day extend from sea to shining sea, we don't really know. There were other founding fathers who said that that might very well happen. But he died on the 6th of November, 1816. He was 64 years old at the time, which was fairly old at that time. He was buried in an Episcopal churchyard and said of him that dying in 1816, he had the satisfaction of seeing the French Revolution finally dissipate, the French so-called Republic collapse, and Napoleon collapse as well, and a return of the Bourbon dynasty to the throne in France. He lived to see that happen. But I think perhaps his death can be very well commemorated by something that he wrote in 1809. He said, I descend toward the grave, full of gratitude to the giver of all good. Well, when we reflect upon this man, Governor Morris, we can certainly see in this man a very important founding father. And some of the things that I hope we would get out of Governor Morris would be, number one, his belief that government has to be based on a realistic view of the nature of man, and that the same government and the same constitution that might work for one nation might not work for another. God's principles are absolute, but their application has to be based on the nature of people. And a republic will work with a population like the people of the United States in 1789, a people that were used to self-government based partly on the Protestant view of the priesthood of all believers and upon the literacy of the public, reading the scriptures, for example. All of these things made the American Republic workable in the United States. The virtue of the American people, which was inculcated by religion, and by religion we mean pretty much interchangeably with Christianity, that virtue made it possible for a state of freedom. Without virtue, you have to have control. You might say, people need control. And either that is going to be self-control from within, or else it's going to have to be imposed by government. <clears throat> and 
So <clears throat> we need a nation that has a moral populace if freedom is going to work. You recall what Ben Franklin said when he was asked when the delegates were leaving the convention on September 17th, 1787, what sort of government have you given us, Dr. Franklin? A republic or a monarchy? And he answered, a republic, if you can keep it. That's what we've been trying to do for the last 230 years. Keep the republic. But <clears throat> part of keeping the republic is keeping the moral virtue that makes that republic possible. And we can keep that moral virtue by preserving the faith of our founding fathers. Well, Brian, we have only a couple minutes left, so what questions do you think our audience would have at this time as we look to Governor Morris or as we look to the Constitution as a whole? Well, I think it's, uh, I'm not trying to understate things, but we live in a time where you don't see a lot of leaders who uh, are standing on principles and practices that are consistent with liberty. Uh, Colonel, I would ask you, um, explain to us, why is it so important that we, we understand the wisdom that went into the framing of the Constitution, the government that it called into existence? Uh, in other words, clearly there are people who aren't following it today. Why is it in our interest to know and apply those principles? Because they're eternal principles. And I kind of summarize those principles as twofold. First of all, a high view of God and his law. The view that there is a higher law, as Jefferson says in the Declaration, the laws of nature and of nature is God. And part of that higher law being that God has created all men in a state of equality and that he has endowed all of us with inalienable rights. But secondly, a low view of man and his nature. And because of the nature of man, we can't trust people to live in a state of anarchy. That's why the Articles of Confederation didn't work. But we can't trust all power to government either, because the rulers of government have the same sinful nature of everybody else. That's what the Constitutional Republic is all about. Mm-hmm. 